Good morning, everyone. Please allow me to introduce our speaker, Mary Duryea. Her uh, <laughs> practice name is Hankyo Joshu, Original Home Stillness. Mary is a retired psychologist and meditator currently serving as the president of BZC Board. She grew up in the Northwest and came to the Bay Area to attend school in 1967 and has been here since. She first walked through the gate at BZC in 1993, received lay ordination from Sojin Mel Weitzman in 2004 and was head student Chuseau in 2017. She spends her time gardening and when possible in the wilderness in a kayak or a raft. In just a moment, Mary will make an offering and then I will lead the chant. An unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Good to be together. And it's a beautiful day. Um, also, good evening to those of you who are on the other side of the world. Um, today is the Transgender Day of Remembrance, um, day that we remember people who've been murdered because of their self-expression. And unfortunately, 2021 has been a record year in that regard. So remembering them. And today we, we know that we have so much more to do to make our justice system more equitable. And locating ourselves even further, we are a week past the end of our aspects of practice, the practice period where we studied the Gakudo Yojinshu. And we are about two weeks away from Rohatsu and looking right um, into next week, our week of celebrating gratitude and Thanksgiving. And knowing that that's that's embedded in the season, the season of harvest. And it comes to us with a pretty complex historical narrative that we are still understanding and understanding from many different frames. And lastly, I guess I would say it's sort of locating ourselves is that we, you know, our Sangha is deep in the middle of a conversation about reopening, which is both very exciting and complicated and a little fraught, maybe. So at the beginning, what I want to talk about is um, something that I came across at the beginning of um, the aspects in a, in a little bit of research that I did about the Gakudo Yoshinju, 
being Dogen's pointer, pointers for practicing the way. Um, and I found an interview or a conversation between um, a very highly respected Soto Zen priest in Japan, Noiri Roshi, and a conversation between him and five people. Four of them, uh, or three of them were uh, Suzuki Roshi students, um, two couples, um, Jane and Peter Schneider and Carl Bielefeld and his wife, um, Fumiko, and Huitsu, who was Suzuki's son, and then the abbot at Rinzo Inn, the, the family temple. Um, it wasn't transcribed, it wasn't transcribed because it, I think it wasn't audio taped, it was remembered. So it's second and third and fourth hand, if you will. But it had a, a big effect on me. And I, I, I would like to read the two descriptions. What it is is Noiri being interviewed by them about Suzuki and who he was and how he was and, and Noiri's memory of him when Suzuki was still in Japan. So here's, and so it's, because it's not a transcription, it's, a, it, it's in the third person. Noiri Roshi witnessed a lay ordination ceremony led by Suzuki and said that what struck him about Suzuki Roshi was the perfection with which he carried himself, the way he moved, the way he handled his zagu, which is the uh, cloth for bowing on, the way he bowed, these kinds of things were so perfect and the temple just right for the situation that he felt that this kind of perfection could not have been achieved in one lifetime. Another time Noiri Roshi felt very strongly the feeling of this stillness in Suzuki Roshi when once at the Yaizu station, they happened to pass each other. Yaizu is the town that Rinzoen is located in, in Japan. And Suzuki Roshi gave just a quick greeting, hi, and went by him. And Noiri Roshi felt that deep, profound stillness in Suzuki, even though he had just said hi and went by. And the impression that Noiri Roshi had was that Suzuki Roshi was in that simple way, encouraging his own practice. At that time, Noiri Roshi was very busy, and in contrast to Suzuki, was dashing past. He had just finished publishing a book on Dogen's Eihei Karoku. And in Suzuki Roshi's greeting, he felt a kind of Gokura-sama, um, a thank you, and an encouragement for the work that he had done. He didn't say you did a good job. He just said hi. And Noiri Roshi felt that Suzuki Roshi recognized the effort that he had made and was not congratulating him, but encouraging him. As he walked up the stairs, he was left with this image of Suzuki Roshi, which he can still recall today. So, I, my, I, the, I, the deep effect that it had on me, I think, was that it, well, 
the obvious one is it raises the bar of practice for me considerably to imagine what it would be like to carry that stillness into daily life in whatever situation one is in. Um, and it only, when I was working on this, it only recently, like in the last day or two, occurred to me that it also may be significant because of my second Dharma name, which is Jesu, which is alternately translated as stable center or stillness. <laughs> and I've often thought of this stillness as like the still point in a gyroscope. Uh, one of the reasons that I came to BZC was that I, I had heard that the teacher there had been a student of Suzuki's and I don't remember why or what I knew about Suzuki, but I knew that I, I wanted something of that effect of Suzuki's. Um, and I subsequently got emerged, immersed in the practice and didn't really think about it um, much after that in that way. Um, but several years after Sojin's death, um, or prior, rather prior to his death, Ed Herzog, our in-house videographer, did a series, I think four, of interviews videotaped of Sojin uh, for a total, I think, of about eight hours or more. And each interview had a theme. The first one, I think, was his uh, family of origin experiences and childhood. And I think the second one was his early days with Suzuki. And I think it was the second one that I attended. And there were only four of us in the Zendo, Ed and Sojin and myself and Maria, I think. And um, toward, toward the end of the first hour, Sojin started talking about something which struck me as being really important. And I tried to remember what he said. And I couldn't, I went looking for notes about it. I didn't write anything down. So I asked it and he graciously went through the videotape and found the moment. So now I wanna just say what Sojin said that affected me. He said, what hooked me as difficult as it was I was challenged like I've never been challenged before. I remember Suzuki wrote, Roshi saying, the only thing I can give you is my Zen spirit. To me, I always felt he was driving us to go beyond ourselves, to do something more than we thought we could do. So that was really inspiring to, for me. I remember early on feeling freed from myself. I just wanted to run back and bow to him for driving me to that extreme. I was so grateful to the practice. That's why I gave myself over to it. I felt liberated. I didn't feel like I needed anything. There was nothing I had to have or had to do. I felt totally free. I guess you could call it a Kensho. I just felt free. 
So I've been thinking recently, remembering that settled feeling that Sojin conveyed. And I, I think there is a way in which I identify that settled feeling with something of how he transmits Suzuki or what, what he learned from Suzuki that's handed down to us. Um, I mean, we all remember how he bowed, um, how he arranged the altar during service, how he sat in Zazen. I, I have particularly been remembering how he did Kinhen walking meditation. I, watching him, I had this feeling of stillness between each step. He would step and then there was stillness and he would step and then there was stillness. It wasn't a constant moving. Like I would certainly been. I remember trying to emulate that, how to find that stillness within movement. Hosan recently suggested that that quality of Sojin's was of no gaining idea. And that has caused me to think that maybe the no gaining idea is actually this stillness. It's that settledness. And they're pointing to the same thing. Maybe they are the same thing. Uh, maybe it's a, a way of visualizing how to carry zazen into daily life. But I found that it's not possible to spend much time contemplating settledness without immediately coming upon unsettledness. Uh, and recently um, I went to the Humboldt Red, Redwoods as a way really of finding a settledness. I, I found a place to stay that had no Wi-Fi, completely unplugged and I recommend, I recommend this place um, to all of you. It is, I mean, if you walk in the redwoods here in Oakland, they're wonderful, but they are juveniles compared to those fellows up there. Um, and they, 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 they're steeped in settledness. It's, the air is saturated with it. It, it can't help but breathe it in, actually. But coming home <laughs> was another matter. Um, soon after I came home, I had a day of back-to-back -back meetings, which I fought. I did not, I was fighting my own schedule. I was extremely unsettled and I was unsettled that I was unsettled. Um, not liking it, and as I can do, I was finding fault with being unsettled. Felt like a failure of composure in some way. Um, and eventually, you know, during the day, I I was cooking dinner, and I looked down at my hands 
chopping vegetables. And because I, I was noticing my unsettledness and I, I did a, a moment of just trying to arrive back in the moment. And that's the only moment I remember from that entire day. And it has a kind of vividness in my mind. So then I, I went to looking for what Suzuki Hiroshi had to say on the subject of unsettledness. And I found it in Not Always So, a chapter called True Concentration. And um, the word actually contemplating several things that he said. If you know, he's saying to us, if you know, I am making a mistake, but even so, I cannot help continuing with my practice. Then there is no need to worry. If you open your true eyes and accept that you that, that the you that is involved in a wrong idea of practice, that is real practice. Let me read that again. I think it's interesting to try to get. If you accept the you that is involved in the idea of wrong idea of practice, that is real practice. Which was very encouraging to me, I have to say. He goes on, you accept your thinking because it's already there. You cannot do anything about it. There's no need to try to get rid of it. This is not a matter of right or wrong, but of how to accept, frankly, with an openness of mind, what you are doing. That is the most important point. So this seems to me like a very complete kind of acceptance. Because on Zazen practice is how we obtain calmness and clarity of mind, but we cannot do this by physically forcing something on ourselves or by creating some special state of mind. So there goes my idea that I'm gonna search for subtleness and find it and just be there, right? It is so, but if you practice Zazen in order to attain that kind of mirror-like mind, that is not the practice we need. When you practice Zazen, you will accept the you who is thinking about something without trying to be free of the images you have. And then he has this, in, in quotes as if we're saying it to ourselves, oh, here they come. In that way, your practice includes everything, one thing after the other, and you do not lose your calmness of mind. So there's a lot in there. Let me see if I can try to unpack some of it, but certainly it starts with acceptance, um, with complete acceptance, even with the unsettledness, accepting the unsettledness. Then Interestingly, the 10th pointer of the Dogen's guidelines for practicing the way is called by Okamura's translation, settling down right here. And Okamura is, this is a translation of Dogen, this is Dogen. Everyone has a body and mind. Abilities vary between the strong and weak. 
and the high and low spirited. In movement or in stillness, you should realize Buddha directly through nothing other than your body and mind. Do not try to change your body or mind. Just follow the realization of the true teacher. This is called being here or settling down. So, ours is a body-mind practice. Dogen says, realizing Buddha directly through nothing other than your body and mind. I've been reading um, a book called My Grandmother's Hands with a reading group, one of the reading groups um, at BZC, which is part of our Addressing Racism project, our work. Um, and this book is by um, Resma Menachem, and it is one of the best descriptions of how trauma works and how one works with trauma to heal and uh, establish resilience. It happens to be focused on the trauma associated with racism, but he extends that to how it affects us differentially, how it affects the black body or, and the white body and the police body. He says, this is Menachem, trauma always happens in the body is not a flaw or weakness, it is the body's protective response to an event or series of events that it perceives as dangerous. And it is always embedded in a body response, it's visceral. And our practice is a body practice as well. We focus on our breath, for example. Zazen is described as equivalent to a yoga posture. Ron, Ron, in one of the classes, recently asked the question, which was also, he, he described asking a teacher the question early on in his practice, why do we focus on the breath? Which was my question early on too, because it seemed arbitrary. But the breath is a very easy, easily accessed indication of how the body is doing, what's happening in the body, whether there's stress or not stress. So it is a way of locating oneself in one's body. A lot of our, of our Buddhism focuses on both our perceptual capabilities and our limitations perceptually and how that affects the limit of what we can know and understand that there's a mystery beyond what we can perceive. In, the mo in movement or in stillness, you should realize Buddha directly through nothing other than your body and mind. So it's the body and mind, which is settled or unsettled.
And this is not something that just happens in one person by themselves, isolated or uninfluenced, even though we've been quarantined and it's been difficult for us to be influenced by, you know, being together personally by being on Zoom. And we found intimacy even so. Nevertheless, being in the Zendo is not about just being in a building. It's about being with other bodies, being with other people and influence of that, the effect of that. Here's what Menachem says about that. He says, when one settled body encounters another, this can create a deeper settling of both bodies. But when one unsettled body encounters another, the unsettledness tends to compound in both bodies. We, we know this, right? It's, it's, it's sort of the background of our lives. I mean, I know it driving down 580 on the freeway. I can feel when someone has an intention of moving into my lane before they signal. You can feel the energy of the people around you, even though we're separated by these skins of metal and glass. Um, I had the opportunity to um, be with my great nephews when they were babies in the NICU. This is years ago now. They were born at 25 weeks very early. And so they spent about six weeks in the NICU. And I was happened to be there by chance in the last year, the last year, the last week of their being there. And so I went and learned from the nurses how to hold them and what they and what the language is that they use to communicate. And the, the nurses understand that babies who are newborn can communicate. And one of the things they like, like for example, this means I really don't like what's happening right now. <laughs> Make it stop. So I got to know these, these twins, these guys, Guy and Max, and then on the one of the fifth day I was there, they were brought home and I was at their house waiting for them, mom and dad, to bring them into the house. And they each had a baby and one of them put Sky into my arms. And this little fellow who had been just, you know, like this, this is how he was, went like this. He just melted, his hands just went out to his side. He could in his body feel the difference between being in the NICU and being home. Even though he had never been home, he was picking up how we communicate, you know, in our, we read in our bodies. It's so dramatic. And as we contemplate being back together, we know what we've been missing, that settledness that happens when we are all settled together. It is also true that this is the longest period of time that we have gone without a referral to the HEAR committee in the history of the HEAR committee. 
here committee, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is the Harmony, Ethics, and Reconciliation Committee. So the other side of being settled is that we have not had moments of unsettledness bumping into other unsettledness. We settle one another and we unsettle one another, depending on who we are. So in that interview, by the way, that interview of Noe Roshi was in 1973, which is just about two years after Suzuki had died. Um, Huitsu speculates that there's, there was a relationship between the stillness that Noiri Roshi felt and the importance of precepts in Zen practice. So uh, perhaps this is another element of navigating settledness and unsettledness. It's what, what we do, what do we do? How are we, what is our guide to knowing what to do when we are unsettled? I recently ran across this sentence. The trick is to metabolize pain as energy. Metabolize pain as energy. Um, I take this as the work of digesting unsettledness or pain or distress. And by positing the idea that that work happens by returning to the present moment. Like the moment such as the one that I can remember from my very unsettled day, chopping the vegetables. Uchiyama says, and this is a commentary of the Genjo Koan, when we intimately practice and return right here it is clear that all things have no fixed self, which is the gift of impermanence. And see, when you return to your unsettled self, you can, why well, can reassure myself, this is impermanent. He also says, we are not fixed as deluded living beings, nor are we fixed as enlightened Buddhas. Actually, to awaken to the reality of life before the separation between enlightenment and delusion is Buddha. So, including both, including settled and unsettled. He calls this living vividly in the present moment. Um, Carol Paul has told this story several times in several venues, so I think it's okay if I, if I say it here, that Sojin said to her when her husband Al died, he told her to enjoy her life. Now, I, I'm assuming that this instruction is not spiritual bypass, that it's not an instruction about avoiding pain. But it is fully feeling the pain and knowing that it is a flow of energy. Um, and to realize the no separation between grief and enjoyment. Deeply realizing no fixed self. I mean, the way I 
visualize this is that we are energy. We are a flow of energy. We are actually maybe a flow of many layers of synchronous energy, energetic processes, which is to say we're not products, we're not end products. So it's isn't possible to get somewhere finally, like finally be enlightened. It's not a goal. It is the effort on the way that is the true pleasure of life. So I want to come back to Suzuki and give him the last word. This is from uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind in a chapter called Calmness. In our everyday life, we are usually trying to do something, trying to change something into something else. We're trying to attain something. Just this trying is already in itself an expression of our true nature. The meaning lies in the effort itself. We should find out the meaning of our effort before we attain something. goes on to quote Dogen, we should attain enlightenment before we attain enlightenment. Isn't that typical Dogen? But says, here's Suzuki again. It is not after attaining enlightenment that we find its true meaning, that trying to do so, something in itself is enlightenment. When we are in difficulty or distress, there we have enlightenment. When we are in defilement, there we should have composure. Usually we find it very difficult to live in the effervescence of life, but it is only within the effervescence of life that we can find the joy of eternal life. So I'm imagining that this is the freedom that Sojin was talking about. So with that, I'm very interested to hear what your thoughts are and comments and questions. And I want, well, I want to hear from everyone. I particularly want to encourage those of you who do, don't usually say something or are shy to feel free to step forward and um, Eko, I think that means I turn things over, yeah? Yes, thank you, Mary, for your wonderful talk. Um, it, we're all, I'm sure, spellbound and waiting for our questions to arise. We have a question from Lori. Uh, Lori, please go ahead. 
Is there a difference between physical pain and emotional pain? Or, or what is the difference between physical pain and emotional pain? Um, my mind is going in two different directions about that. I, I mean, that's a good question, and it and it does a little bit um, reflect the Western separation of body and mind, which I think is a frame, but not necessarily the only frame that one can think or use. Um, I mean, there's some neurological ideas about where um, where pain is experienced, but I pretty much it's neurological, and the there is both the brain inside the skull, and then there's the second brain that is in the. The, all the nerves surrounding the chest and the gut. So pretty much a feeling is a body feeling. And one can access that. One, one can name it and, you know, cognize it, but one can also feel it without naming it, I think. Is that sort of in the territory you're thinking? Yeah. I mean, I guess I just think that a person can have unbearable emotional pain that is not the same as unbearable physical pain. And what is that? I mean, it's just, I, it's a question for me. It's a koan, you know. Um, they seem to be in the same place, but they seem to be happening in the same place, except they're still kind of different somehow. Well, I think when there's, yes, exactly. I mean, I think that there's pain that one can cause by how one thinks about something. Yeah. Right? That's what you're thinking. Of. Kind of. Or just getting hard, your heart broken is unbearable, but it's not the same as like when my knee is in unbearable pain. Or maybe it is the same, just in a different part of the body. I, I It's a question for me. I, I don't know. Yeah. But, there, but what you're talking about is also the pain that, you cause yourself by beating yourself up or something. That's also right. a painful thing. Right. Yeah. right. And some of my understanding, and I'm not, you know, very extremely well versed in this, is that is that dealing with chronic pain is a, a physical pain is a, a a cognition process that one the kinds of exercises that one does in order to manage chronic body pain, um, one can address through conceptual mm -hmm. uh, exercises. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Ross, I think you're next. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. Uh, you're recalling Carol's story about when her husband died and Sojin's teaching to her reminded me of when I uh, went through my divorce and I went to Sojin Roshi and he said, well, now you have an opportunity to practice alone, which doesn't sound so helpful or encouraging, 
but uh, ultimately it was the uh, the answer that that worked for me that I mm. needed to hear mm. uh, coming from my Zen teacher in that uh, it's it's up to me to figure it out and uh, he could be a mirror to reflect this pain and difficulty I was going through and say well now what are, what are you going to do you know what are you going to do and um, it's I guess counterintuitive maybe is the word that um, when I <clears throat> speak with my friends or therapists, they have a different kind of take on the uh, remedy, so to speak, of that. But um, uh, for here at BZC, it was uh, it was the right medicine, mm. um, and we all share uh, our difficulties with one another, which is helpful as a, as a sort of a spiritual and pastoral kind of uh, care and concern, uh, third treasure. Mm -hmm. um, so thanks for bringing these questions up for us. Sure, thank you. Okay, thank you, Ross. Uh, Jeff, please go ahead with your question. Thanks for a great talk, Mary. You, oh, thank you, Jeff. You've called me forth in any number of ways and reminded me of, of things that I value really deeply. Um, when, when you talk about Sojin and, and witnessing how he moved in space, and how he moved with other people in space. It was it was some of the deepest and and and, and first learnings when when I came into the Zendo. And you know I, I've said this before, but he talked about you know hearing with your eyes and seeing with your ears, and and mimicking what he did and finding that space inside of my body that reflected practice in that. The feeling of the world becoming crisp and new after chanting with with the sangha. I mean all of the things that kind of led me into. Um, an aware and settled place. Mm -hmm. That settling for me is is often a return, right? It's a return from unsettling. Mm -hmm. I was chatting with an old friend yesterday who, who's also a therapist, and she was talking about her, her inner critical voice. And I've got to work with this voice, and all of her attention was on that voice. And I said, for me, it's different. What are you returning to? How do you return to your voice of compassion and your voice of, of, of self-love and your voice of all of the things that you value, not worrying about where you've been, but, but where are you right now? I mean, I, I'll say it this way, but I think about life ugh, as a series of moments that are connected by the awareness that we cultivate in sitting. Where is my attention? Where is my awareness? What am I aware of? How am I working with what's in my body? Where, where is my breath? I mean, breathing and, and returning the breath made so much sense to me because it's so universal. Anyway, you, you, it was just a wonderful talk because you raised for me the essential question of um, how am I in this moment? Who am I in this moment? And, and for my practice, it is working with a question that calls me forth most most effectively and so I'm, I'm really grateful thank you so much hi sorry about that thank you for a great talk so i have um a comment uh something personal and also um a question regarding that um so sojin always said um start from enlightenment more move towards practice, which has been very, very sort of, it gets the idea of I want to reach enlightenment, getting mine out of the way. It's, it's wonderful. 
But we also need to remember or don't forget the dark side of meditation, especially folks that had physical, mental trauma, what have you. And when you're sitting and you have the white wall in front of you, it's you, your mind, your body, your breath, and everything that has been sort of stamped on that psyche and that physical. Um, so when you get off the cushion, especially after two, three days of sitting, when you leave the cushion, you're sort of on your own with everything that sort of like got unearthed and got opened up. And that should be a very vulnerable and very, almost very dangerous place to be on your own, especially when you come home. Um, I have the fortune of having a, a, a good support in the home. But for somebody that particularly doesn't have that structure when they come home with all of that, um, you can call it dark energy, you can call it whatever, and you can also feel it in your body. Um, but what do you do with that? Oh, that's a that's a deep question. You're really talking about trauma, right? And and the and the vulnerability of trying to metabolize trauma is uh, tricky. I think. I mean, I think. Um, well, first of all, I would. Um, recommend Menachem's book to you. Um, and he really does talk about this as a body practice and about um, settling in the body as a, uh, it's almost like instead of the openness of zazen, it's more like the, um, the guided meditation processes where one is, um, is, imagining and visualizing oneself through several sequences of things. And um, I, I think, you know, who, who comes to mind is Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, the, the Thich Nhat Hanh's book on anger um, is a particularly good one. And he talks about being so unsettled and so angry that he couldn't sit, that he could not sit zazen. And so what he did was hin him. And he just paced the floor all night long and just let himself feel the anger without doing anything about it. And until he finally sort of exhausted himself. So, so that would, that's one thing that comes to mind. Another thing that comes to mind is I think it's very, very important to be gentle with oneself and to not, and to, um, I mean, is it, is it, not bite off more than one can chew, so to speak, to go up to the, to be, to go to the challenging moment, the challenging edge, but 
not the re-traumatizing edge. I mean, that's that's the place where you don't want to go is to be so much in the memory that you're re-traumatizing. And, and so finding your one zone, we all have to find that edge where we are challenging ourselves, but not hurting ourselves, right? I mean, very, I, very difficult to do. It's, it's, a, it's, it's almost like brain surgery. You know, you, yeah. you deal with like neurons almost like just That's right. if sometimes I, things are even not visible and like they just flare up. Um, right. <clears throat> right. And Andrea uh, mentioned last week uh, when she would approach Sojan and she would think that, oh, maybe he's thinking that. And then he would say, I don't even go there. <clears throat> and that I think I, I sort of been using that um, in my mind, you know, like when the thought and right. a trigger happens and then right. it just goes. Right. right. And so right. I, I go, OK, I don't, I don't even want to go there. Right. And you know, we already dealt with, you know, you blah, blah, blah. And then just come back to the breath. So nice. Uh, nice. You learn things. But uh, I, what's been helping um, here is the three jewels, of course, but the, the Sangha. Yeah. And and their sangha is not necessarily they're all in the BCC. There are sangha's at mm -hmm. uh, Safeway, at Whole Foods, wherever, everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, but again, thank you. Um, I just wanted to share that. Yeah, thank you. A husband and wife. They they were they're professors in Brown. I don't know their name, but they they actually this program called um, the Dog Side of Meditation. And people yeah. who have really traumatic experiences, and they actually bring him home and they, they treat him and so forth. So I think support of another human being is very important. But anyways, I just want to say thank you for the talk and yeah. appreciate the answers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kabir. Um, we have now a question from Sean. Please go ahead, Sean. Hi, thank you, Mary, for uh, your talk. This is very timely. And um, it's not so much a question, it's just on the subject of uh, pain and trauma. Um, I believe I read somewhere, and this isn't an exact quote, but in uh, Beginner's Mind, uh, Suzuki says um, the fact that you recognize that you have this mental pain or physical pain means that you're alive, you're well enough to recognize that, something mm -hmm. to that effect. And um, so I just wanted to say that, that you know. Nice. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that that so that kind of fits in with the other things that I read about how just recognizing and having the effort is the practice, right? The recognition. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Uh, we have a question from Jim. Uh, Jim Herb, please go ahead. Hi, Jim. Thank you, Mary, for our. Pardon me here. I'm on two devices so that I can both hear and see. What a choice. <laughs> see what I can do here. Can you hear me okay? I can. I'm sorry if there's a little background echo. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for a, a very um, interesting um, talk that uh, I, I absorbed a lot from. Um, I have a question about uh, trauma and karma. 
it's kind of a general question whether you have thoughts on trauma and karma. Um, my question comes from a sense that all of us have trauma. And I think uh, um, we also live in, uh, particularly now in a time when we're becoming more aware of the collective trauma, especially when we talk about racism and uh, some of the difficulties we have in society. So it's a very open question, but I would appreciate your, your comments. Trauma and karma, well, I'm inclined to say, although I don't pretend to be an expert on karma, but I, off, I think of them as the same thing. The causes and conditions that have brought us to this moment are all included. And the, you know, the interesting thing about the trauma research is that they're finding that it can be transmitted down the generations that can actually be transmitted in the DNA. I mean, that that is a little bit amazing to me when I think about how memories and events can get embedded in that kind of granular way. Um, so I, I think it's another way of talking about what's happened to us and how we have been shaped by what's happened to us and how we affect one another. Um, I, I'm, I'd be interested to hear what other people think, but what do you think? You, oh, you, okay. Thank you, Jim, very much. Um, Peter, uh, please go ahead with your question. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Mary. It's so good to hear you. Oh, we have Just to on that. Okay. Oops. Go ahead. Uh, Peter. Peter Overton, please. Oh, I'm sorry. Peter C. Go, go ahead, Peter Carpentier. Since you're already on to get in, unmuted, go ahead. Who's on, me? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, just on that last question, our book group is reading America's Racial Karma. Mm. by Larry Ward, which really speaks to that question. It's a very short book, so if that's helpful at all. But um, thank you for your talk. I really appreciate you raising the question of, of trauma as it relates to sitting. And um, this has kind of already been said, but in trauma healing, we often use the phrase titration. Uh, we titrate everything, which means we take it in little tiny bits so as not to re-traumatize someone and I discovered after many, many years of sitting Rahatsu and five days and going to Tassahar that I was dissociating the entire time I was doing all of that. And that as soon as those retreats were over, I was at the local junk food store just pounding down mm -hmm. junk food to deal with all the, what was just said, you know, five days of sitting, looking at a wall with no one to usher me or support me or help me heal through what was coming up little by little. Uh -huh. So my own experience tells me that for some people, me included, sitting in one day sashin is too much. Mm. I mean, Suzuki Roshi said in one of his talks, sometimes sitting every day is too much. If that's too much, sit once a week. He was very much attuned to mm. just what's enough. Mm. So I have not set a, set a sashin in years, um, but in those years, I've gotten some really high quality skilled trauma therapy from some really high quality skilled 
therapists, one of whom is a Zen teacher at San Francisco Zen Center, mm. who I sat um, practice period with 15 years ago at oh. uh, Tassahara. Um, so, and now I don't know if I'll ever sit another sashin, but now I know how to listen to my body and how to mm. know when enough is enough and more is now going to be a problem rather than a solution and what the resources are that are available to me when that happens. And the last thing I'll say, because I think it's really important, is that my training has told me that trauma almost always happens in relationship, mm -hmm. whether it's a car accident or a parent or racial trauma, it always, so it has to be healed in relationship. Mm -hmm. Something about another empathic, warm, loving, supportive body that is co-regulating with mine, which you spoke to, that mm -hmm. ushers me through that experience without getting re-traumatized. And a wall doesn't provide that. It just doesn't provide that. So I really think we have to be to a certain point of healing in our own bodies before we can sit in front of a wall for a day or three days or seven days without you know, getting re-traumatized if we're trauma survivors. And I just think it's a really important thing that you raised and for us to be aware of. And if anybody hasn't read John Wellwood's interview on spiritual bypass, I think it's with Tricycle. I have it, um, you can go to the BCC community and ask for it. I can post it, but it's a wonderful talk on that topic. Great, thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. Sure. Peter Overton. Thank you, Peter. Let's go with Peter Overton. I would actually ask Peter C. to put your uh, email in the chat for people to communicate with you on what you just offered. Thank you. Peter, you um, muted. I just, yeah, now, now I'm back on. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. I, I really appreciate the way you hold the space and the subject matter. It makes it so much, uh, so accessible. Um, my question has to do with, uh, I'm finding it's really important in my life at this point in practice to focus on physical and emotional stability and balance. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the concept of stability as a, a way of encountering the flux of settledness, unsettledness. Um, it seems like stability must include those things in some way. Uh, yeah. I I think you're right. I think, well, two things come to mind. Um, one was, um, Andrea Ryushin talked about this, watching um, Alexandra move across the Zendo, which was a process of continually catching herself from falling, that her movement yes. was finding the stability in the movement and fall, combining them. But so that, that's one thing that comes to mind. The other, the other that comes to mind is that idea of a gyroscope where there's a, a still place, but there's movement all around it and, yeah. right? So it does, I, I do, this has been uh, what I've been needing to, focus on for myself, which is about including unsettledness 
in the settledness to include yeah. the not settled with the settled that it's that it's like this so there was a constant sort of recovery from one to the other right yeah yeah thank you thank you i'm sorry i'm unmuted go ahead dean please with your question thank you um so I've got a couple things I want to ask you or bring up, Mary. One of them, when Lori was talking about unbearable pain, whether it's emotional or whether it's uh, physical, um, I've, especially with my mother, I've gone through a couple of situations and I had felt that certain things would be unbearable and I would not be able to get through them. And what ended up is that um, I did get through them. And, um, so I think in thinking about what Lori said, there's a part of me that wonders is, um, how much does our unbearable pain, how much of it is that it's someplace that we've decided we're going as opposed to someplace we might land if we allow ourselves to land where we land, where, where it takes us. So that's one of the things. And then the other is your talk was a lot, felt to me a lot about our own mind and body and um, how we work with them. But in the last, you know, several years, I have felt that, that we as a Berkeley Zen Center have sort of leaned a lot closer towards uh, focusing on how we help others and how we fix others and how we keep other people from being hurt. And, you know, let's do this, but that might hurt people or let's not do that. That might hurt people. And I'm wondering how do we, or how do you see us um, dealing with our own minds and our own bodies with our practice and how that can be the good starting place, or if you believe it is, for then how do we work with not necessarily individuals, but with the greater good of all and, and how that is done? Um, because it feels like two different paths to me. Um, so if you could speak on that, I would appreciate it. Thank you. Well, it's possible that I'm not completely understanding what you're saying, but it, I, I would say that um, it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't experience those two things as separate paths, I guess. And I'm trying to figure out why I don't see it that way. Um, Partly because I, 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 when I think about doing things for others, if you will, that that frame, I think that that's that you're referring to. I'm, I, I actually think that I'm doing that for myself. I don't think those are separate. Um, I think it's an. It's it's an expression. I, I I get so much from 
from feeling in relationship to someone and, and caring about that it doesn't feel like a different path to me than having responsibility for what's going on in this general energetic neighborhood. Um, it, it feels to me like those are very related. Um, so I don't know if I can, I don't know if that helps at all, but they don't feel separate to me, I guess. Thank you. I think I'm probably not explaining myself very clearly, but th this might be sort of an example. For example, when we open up the Zendo again and people need to be vaccinated, I'm assuming, hoping, and need to wear masks. And I heard someone say, well, we, can't, we don't wanna hurt anybody's feelings. And what if someone comes and they're not vaccinated or they don't wanna wear a mask? What do we do? Because we don't wanna hurt anybody's feelings. And I feel like that it too, it shouldn't be something separate. I mean, I feel like if, if I'm good, everybody around me has the potential of being good. And if I am not good, meaning if I am not practicing, then it makes it harder for people around me. Uh, I will make it harder for people around me. So I guess in a case like that, it's for me, it's not so confusing is what do we do? We don't wanna hurt someone's feelings. And I guess that's the thing that I, I am more sort of talking about, like in a, in a situation like that, that it really can't, everything can't stop because it might hurt someone's feelings that they don't, they're either not vaccinated, don't wanna get vaccinated, can't get vaccinated, don't wanna wear a mask because the, if the plan is that this is what we do. And I guess I, I've seen more getting caught by, we don't wanna hurt someone's feelings. And so a, a bigger plan or the good for all somehow becomes less of the equation. And, and I think that's, that's an example, I think, of what I'm talking about. So hopefully that's a little bit more clear than mud. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Ed, did you want to have a question? Thank you. Hi. Go ahead, Ed. Yes. Hi. Um, uh, thanks, Mary. Um, you know, that interview that I did with Sojin, um, what struck me, um, really struck me, was when he said um, he felt like he wanted to bow down. He wanted to rush up to, run up to Suzuki Roshi and, and bow down to his, at his feet. And I was so surprised because I, um, like what Peter was saying is that I would be, I would go to Sashin's and I would feel like I, I would just needed to run out of the, <laughs> run out of the Zendo because of all the material that was coming up for me. And the, um, the idea of, of bowing down in gratitude was felt, I was, I was really taken aback by having that experience. Mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. and that knowing our limits is really important yeah. and um, and I really didn't 
know my limits and sort of just wanted to gut it out. And uh, that's why I was like, how could you feel that? You know, how could you be so full of gratitude to do that? And um, so that's it. Thank you for your interviewing and work and all the wonderful things that you've done in archiving and so forth. Thank you, thank you, Ed, for your comments. And, and I'd like to say that knowing our limits, we are well over our time today. And I couldn't leave it to Mary or Hosan to make the call if we continue with this interesting dialogue. I'm fine, why don't we take the next Okay, I would ask uh, questioners to please be brief and concise. Thank you. Asking me to be, hi everyone. Thank you so much <laughs> for your talk. Asking me to be brief and concise is like, a, you know, that's, that's harder than any of the practices I've had to do so far. <laughs> so um, I, I guess, I don't have a specific question. I wanted to talk to everything that you said in every response so much for concise. Um, but I guess the thing that came to mind, um, two things in particular, one was in the question of the body-mind pain, uh, the way that physical pain is in a place we can locate it, whereas emotional pain is is ethereal and that it doesn't exist in a place. And and maybe the work of sort of objectifying pain, allowing it to be something that we take care of, can work for both. So if my hand hurts, I take care of my hand, and if my heart or my emotion hurts, then I take care of that. And the, the, that came to my mind. And the other thing I thought of was um, taking time. And I think your the image of, of Suzuki Roshi saying hi in the middle of the bustle around the day and of the student um, and the image of you looking at your hands in the evening of a day of rushing. Those are the same teachings. And I wanna thank you for those mm. because they remind us that stillness is available. It's about taking time to, mm. to be in it, so. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, sweet. Last questioner uh, will be Stephanie. Please go ahead, Stephanie. I wanted to, um, I'm seeing something. Would you like to unmute your microphone? Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I wanted to respond to uh, what Dean said about uh, making people unhappy by um, setting boundaries around uh, requiring vaccines. You know, I think that setting boundaries is a good thing. 
whether people are unhappy or not with, with those uh, limits, the person who is unhappy has an opportunity to look, if they choose, at the bigger picture. It's an opportunity rather than um, a cause for feeling hurt and separated. <clears throat> I think it's important, I think, that we all learn to step forward into what we're committed to. And keeping our community safe is a first priority. So I thought I would contribute that as a way to look at boundary setting as really very valuable and an opportunity to look at oneself. Right. Thank you so much. I think that's, an, um, that's a great response. I appreciate it. Thank you.